Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. My name is Paul Malmont, and I'll be reading from my new novel, The Chinatown Death Cloud Peril from Simon & Schuster. The year is 1937. Uh, The bestsellers that year include Of Mice and Men, The Hobbit, and Their Eyes Were Watching God. But none of those books came close to selling what Doc Savage and The Shadow sold. Those were pulp magazines, pulp novels, sold on the newsstands every month. Uh, The Shadow was written by Walter Gibson. Doc Savage was created by Lester Dent. Those two men are the real-life heroes who I've fictionalized and told an adventure about in the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril. I will begin in the White Horse Tavern in 1937, uh, where Walter Gibson is talking to a young pulp writer who is uh, known for writing bad westerns, but uh, aspires to so much more. He calls himself The Flash, but he is in reality L. Ron Hubbard. Episode 1. You think life can't be like the pulps? Walter Gibson asked the other man. Let me tell you a story. You tell me where real ends and pulp begins. The cigarette in his left hand suddenly disappeared. The young man, whose most distinguishing characteristic, in spite of his stocky build and shock of red hair, was his powerfully forward-thrusted jaw, blinked in mild surprise at the magic trick, then nodded agreeably. All right, Ron Hubbard said. The cigarette, a filterless Chesterfield, reappeared in Gibson's right hand. He took a long sip from his whiskey and washed it down with a sip of beer and an involuntary shudder. He was getting drunk, and it was too early. He knew it. He didn't even want to be here tonight. Well, he did want to be in the White Horse Tavern drinking, but he didn't want to be here drinking with the youthful and ambitious president of the American Fiction Guild, who had been hectoring him relentlessly to speak about his writing at the weekly gathering of pulp mag writers in the Grand Salon at the Hotel Knickerbocker. John Nanovic, his ed at Street and Smith, had begged, pleaded, and in the end agreed to pay for a few of this evening's drinks if he would agree to do it. Nanovic had told Gibson that it was important for him, as the number one best-selling mag writer in America, to take an interest in the new writers, the young writers, to help groom them. Gibson felt that what Nanovic really wanted him to do was to find a successor, in case he stumbled in front of a trolley car some drunken evening. Ultimately, he had to admit that it was a fair concern for an editor to have about him. So, here he was, having drinks with Lafayette Ron Hubbard, a writer of moderately popular but pedestrian, in Gibson's opinion, westerns, and at 25, 15 years younger than he. One of the new writers, one of the young ones. They were seated at a small table next to the bar and treating themselves to waiter service. Hubbard was one of those writers who acted like they really cared about writing and had launched into a theory that the sort of adventure pulp Gibson wrote was somehow less valid than the westerns and two-fisted tales he wrote, because at least his stories were based on history or reality. Gibson knew the kid was impressed by him. Hubbard had practically been begging him for a sit-down for weeks. Every now and then, Gibson would see Hubbard looking around the saloon as if he could recognize somebody he knew who might come over and interrupt the conversation. If that had happened, he might then have the opportunity to say to them, Excuse me, but can't you see I'm having drinks with Walter Gibson? That's right, the guy who writes The Shadow magazine. Well, I know The Shadow byline is Maxwell Grant, but that's a company name, a Street and Smith name. Trust me, Walter Gibson is Maxwell Grant. Walter Gibson writes The Shadow Magazine. We're just talking about writing. But he recognized no one, and no one recognized him. Gibson had seen several writers that he knew come through already. The Street and Smith building was just up the road at 15th and 7th, and the tavern was popular with writers who had just been roughed up by Eds and by the Eds who had applied the beating. 
George Bruce, the air ace rider, had been and gone. Elmer Smith, the rocket jock, and Norval Page, the fright guy, were still drinking in a corner, but he hadn't invited either to join them. As a rule, Gibson didn't like other mag riders. He found them too self-denigrating yet self-important at the same time. He much preferred the company of the magicians, whose books and articles he often ghosted. He kind of liked Hubbard, though. The kid was eager and acted like he thought his shit smelled like roses, a confidence most other writers lacked. In a one-draft world, a man had to believe that every word he wrote was right. Gibson knew he had quickly muscled out old Arthur Brooks, a man Gibson had no use for whatsoever, who as head of the guild had run the organization as a lazy gentleman's social club. Hubbard had plans for the guild, but Gibson didn't really care to know what they were. He knew that Hubbard had lived in New York for several years a while back with a wife and a daughter, and that they had all moved back to Washington State for a while, and that he had left them behind in Washington and returned to New York alone just a few months ago. Gibson could only venture a guess why. The Depression had made it so that sometimes a man couldn't afford to bring his family with him when he went looking for work. But the last thing Gibson wanted to do was ask another man why he had left his wife and child. What's real? What's pulp, right, Ron? He unbuttoned his collar and loosened his tie knot. Okay, here's a story. For the sake of argument, let's call it the tale of the Sweet Flower War. This is a story filled with blood and cruelty and fear and mystery and love and passion and vengeance and villains, he said. It began with the arrival of a strange mist which rolled in from the harbor and seemed to fill the streets of Chinatown. Those who were superstitious felt it was the cloak of death. Those who weren't superstitious, and their numbers were few, only felt it was another reason to hate living here. Walter spoke rapidly, the hard emphasis of his consonants tended to resemble a staccato drumbeat, and his fingers twitched mildly as he spoke, involuntarily typing his words onto the table, or against his leg, or into the air as fast as he spoke them. Gibson's energy always seemed to keep him in motion. His friend Harry Houdini had once told him he seemed to vibrate, even when he was standing still. The deadly fog rolled over the tiny enclave thirty years ago during the Great Tong Wars, when the red flag of war flew over the tallest building in Chinatown. In 1909, the year of the menacing mist, the biggest tong in America was the Onleong Group. They controlled everything in the matter of things Chinese, from Frisco to New York. There were other tongs around at the time, but the only serious rivals were the Hip Sing. Their boss was a fella about your age. Everyone knew him as Mock Duck, and he had a habit, when he got into a brawl, of whipping out two pistols, closing his eyes, and firing blindly until everyone was dead or running for their lives. You can laugh if you want, but legend had it that this was a very effective street-fighting technique. Well, those that said something sinister would emerge from the shadow which had fallen over Chinatown were right. One day, Sweet Flower came to town. Now she was, by all accounts, a beautiful and delicate virgin. She had remarkable, long, slender fingers and could play a variety of Chinese instruments with skill and grace. A slave, of course, smuggled in by a slaver and probably destined for a life of prostitution. But one of the Anliang leaders saw her, fell in love with her, and he had his men steal her from the slaver, or rescue her, if you prefer, and he married her. At first all the slaver wanted was proper restitution for his loss, but the Anliang man refused to pay for what he considered to be true love. He told the slaver to go to hell. The slaver went to another tong, the hip sing. A truce was declared, and the two parties sat down for formal negotiations. Now this was at a time when the tong fighters, the hatchet men, the buhau doi, were killing each other at the rate of two or three a week. So for these two tongs to actually sit down together in the same room and hold a peaceful discussion, he made a futile gesture. Chinatown did not hold its collective breath. 
The negotiations did not go well for the Hip Sing. Once again, they were told in no uncertain terms where they and their demands could go. All things considered, it's pretty remarkable that any man walked out of the tea room alive that day. That night, however, was a different story. While her husband slept, someone broke into their house and cut off each and every one of Sweet Flower's slender and delicate little fingers. It was probably the vile slaver, and in fact, Mock Duck delivered him over to the Onleong for whatever justice they chose to administer. But it wasn't enough, and over the next couple of months, over fifty men from both sides were killed and hundreds more were crippled or maimed in the fighting. Now, what's really incredible about this is that we're talking about a neighborhood that takes up maybe a square mile and is made up of only a dozen or so streets, so relatively, it's a truly gruesome amount of men carving each other up. Gibson cleared his throat. In those days, the center of Chinese social life was the old Chinese theater. It's still there. You can go down and see it for yourself. It's all boarded up now. At the time of the Sweet Flower War, there was a famous comedian named Ah Hoon, famous among the Chinese, an ugly clown of a man loyal to the Anliang. His grand finale was, and this supposedly laid them in the aisles, an impersonation of Mock Duck firing his guns blindly until he would roll over, ass over tea kettle. Guess you had to be there, right? That's what the Hip Sing thought, too. They were losing this war badly, and now they were being made fun of in public by a clown. Word went out that Ah Hoon was a dead man, and he would never see the sunrise after his next performance. Even though City Hall never went out of its way to keep one Chinaman from killing another, the rising tide of blood was starting to offend the sensibilities of the rest of the city. This bald-faced death threat was just the opportunity the cops had been looking for to show that they could handle a few uppity Chinese. That night they turned up at the theater in force. I imagine a load of innocent Chinese men took a whopping nightstick to the head for looking this way or that to some cop's dislike that night, but there was going to be law and order on Doyer Street. Poor Ah Hoon didn't even want to do his act that night. When he heard he was a marked man, he wanted to take the next train out of town, but the cops and the Anli Ong made him take the stage that night. They had something to prove. He didn't. But he waited in the wings and sweated through the acrobats leaping over each other. He agonized through the singer's songs, trying to peer into the darkness to see where the bullet or knife or hatchet was going to come from. He probably came close to having a heart attack every time the gas lamp sputtered and popped downstage. But all the time, the cops and the Anliang men reassured him that all would be well. He was protected. He would live. Can you imagine anyone having a better reason to have stage fright than poor Ahun? He walked out on stage that night, and the first person he saw front and center was Mock Duck grinning up at him. But there were the American police to the left and right of his mortal enemy. Ah Hoon took a deep breath, wished he were in a faraway place, and dove into his act. He didn't change a word, and by all accounts, he was very, very funny that night. Even Mock Duck laughed at the impersonation. When it was time for the curtain call, the police swept him off stage before his first bow, and an encore was out of the question. The point had been made. Ah Hoon had survived the performance. Well, the Anliang men went wild that night. Fireworks exploded in the sky over Chinatown, the brightness dimmed somewhat by the eerie fog. Hip Sing men were burned in effigy and humiliated in songs and jeers. To the Anliang men, the survival of Ah Hoon had proven that the Hip Sing were no longer the threat they had once posed and that the war was won. Meanwhile, the cops hustled Ah Hoon to a cheap room in a cheap hotel next to the theater. They had rented it just to ensure that nothing would happen to tarnish the reputation as protectors of the weak and innocent and funny. The apartment had just one room. Everyone on the floor used the same washroom at the far end of the hall. 
The other apartments along the hall had been cleared of occupants for the night. Didn't matter if they had paid in advance, lived there for years, or had no place else to go. They were rousted. There were no closets in the room, but several small cupboards. There was a bed. There was one window, but it had been jammed into a stuck position for years. A two-inch gap let a little air into the stuffy room, but the window could be neither forced open wider nor lowered more. Three stories down was a dead-end alleyway, barely the width of a broad-shouldered man. Three cops were positioned at its mouth, preventing any entrance. Opposite the window, about three feet away, was the solid brick wall of a building. That particular side was unmarred by a single door or window, featureless and rising another four stories beyond, beyond Ahun's floor. Cops on foot and horseback blocked the front and back entrance to the hotel. Ten officers stood in the hallway outside Ahun's room. A big Swede cop of impeccable moral fiber, at least of no discernible vice, was placed before Ahun's door. An hour after sunrise, the chief of police led a phalanx of reporters, photographers, reformers, and politicians past the few remaining Anliang revelers into the hotel, up to the third floor, down the line of ten cops standing at attention, and up to the big Swede. The chief of police himself proudly opened the door to introduce Ah Hoon to the rest of his life and announced to the world that the resolve of the hip-sing tong had been broken and that peace would reign forever and for all time in Chinatown. The bullet hole had made a perfect dot in the center of Ah Hoon's forehead, giving the appearance of a third eye. He sat cross-legged on his bed, stiff and cold in a pool of his own drying blood. Legend has it that it wasn't even a bullet hole, that it was the touch of a demon. Flies were already buzzing curiously about his head, which faced the single window, still opposite a solid brick wall, still jammed at less than two inches open. And as the chief of police roared his outrage and the flashbulbs popped, and as the word spread throughout Chinatown like a flash fire that the Sweet Flower War was over and the hip sing, not the Anliang, Young, had won, and as an entirely new celebration began, the wide-eyed expression on Ah Hoon's face seemed to say one simple thing. Now that's funny. Gibson closed his fist around the tin stallion and reopened it. It had vanished. The winds changed that morning, and after months of coldly clinging to every nail and stone and board, the Chinatown death cloud rolled back out to sea and vanished as completely as the life from Ahun's body. He closed his fingers into a fist again and then opened them suddenly. A fresh cigarette, tip glowing, now lay crooked between his first two fingers. A simple French drop with a flourish for dramatic punctuation. His tale was told. He inhaled the smoke deeply and waited for the reaction. He could tell a lot about a fellow by the way he reacted to a story or a magic trick. They either bought it, didn't, or tried to find some little flaw that could let them feel like they hadn't been conned into enjoying it when they really had. He figured Hubbard for the last type. The cops were in on it. Gibson was right. They weren't, and you forgot what I asked in the first place, he reminded Hubbard. I asked you to tell me what's real and what's pulp. Well, Hubbard thought for a moment. The way Mock Duck fired his guns sounded kind of pulp. Gibson shook his head. True story. When all her fingers got cut off? Again, Gibson shook his head. What happened to Sweet Flower? Hubbard asked. Gibson shrugged. No one knows. Some say she may have killed herself. Others suppose her husband kept her sequestered in his house until he died, but no one really knows. It looked like Hubbard was about to speak again when he was suddenly interrupted by a strong cough from the bar behind him. When they looked to see who had coughed, the man began to speak. Actually, it's not fairly common knowledge, so I'm not surprised you passed over this, Mr. Gibson. But Sweet Flower, considered defiled, was driven from the house of her husband and ended up living at the mercy of others. Gibson looked at the tall man, leaning against the bar, placidly smoking his pipe, and found himself gritting his teeth. 
What the hell brought Lester Dent out tonight? It's a trick question, said the man behind them, because the whole story is true. If it were a pulp, it would have had a better ending. It's real if it's a lie. If it's a pack of lies, Lester Dent said, it's a pulp. Gibson tried not to let his expression change. Dent, here, tonight, what were the odds? Everyone said he was a teetotaler, but here he was in the white horse, hoisting a mug of beer and looking as smug as an ape on a pile of bananas. Of course, it was a good chance that Dent had dropped off his latest Stock Savage manuscript earlier and decided to celebrate with a beer. For a moment, Gibson wondered just how many books Dent was up to and then decided he didn't care at that moment. Not to say that it can't be true stories in pulps, but most true stories don't have good endings. Pulps need great endings. Mr. Gibson's tale doesn't have a good ending. In fact, it has no ending. The problem with the tale of the Sweet Flower War is that Mr. Gibson ends it just when it's about to turn into pulp. Of course, there's blood, cruelty, fear, mystery, vengeance, heroes, and villains. That's just a good pulp foundation. To make true pulp, really great, stomach-churning, white-knuckle, turn-your-hair white pulp, you have to fill it with a pack of outright lies. Secret identities and disguises, the yellow peril, superweapons, global schemes, hideous deaths, cliffhanging escapes, these are the pack of lies you won't find in any slick or glossy or literary hardcover bestseller. Horrors from the grave, lost lands, overwhelming odds, impossible heroics, unflagging courage, oh, and I almost forgot, gun-toting, lingo-slinging cowboys. He looked at Ron with a mischievous smile, knowing that Hubbard was guilty of perpetrating more than his share of outlandish cowboy tales. Can't be a true pulp without a genuine gun-slinging, tobacco-spattin' cowboy, right, Ron? It's all about the formula. Just throw enough of the right lies into the mix and add a great ending, and you've got a pulp. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 